Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host this week, Dr. John Cook. Good Books Radio is produced by the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley as a public service to public radio and our community. With me today is Eleanor Payson. She is the author of a classic book, The Wizard of Oz and Other Narcissists, and she's educated countless readers with a step-by-step guide for learning to recognize and set boundaries with a narcissist family member, friend, spouse, or colleague. In her book that we're going to talk about today, Discovering the Healthy Self and Meaningful Resistance to Toxic Narcissism, Payson expands on the subject, enlightening readers with more understanding and strategies that empower individuals to deal more effectively with these toxic relationships. Uh, Ms. Payson, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. This is a, a, a powerful uh, explanation and, and really helpful. And I, I, I would emphasize that although there's some great techniques and strategies in here, it is important for people who are dealing with someone who has the narcissistic personality disorder to get uh, therapeutic support and or group support uh, when they're dealing with that kind of relationship. Yes, absolutely. Actually, that's the first step that I emphasize uh, for anyone that might be, you know, beginning to recognize that these dynamics are in play in their lives in whatever way, that they reach what I say endlessly outside the system, whether it's a spousal system or a family system or a business reality, outside the system, even if it's a social friendship network uh, kind of um, experience outside the system to uh, get support and some validation and some of the much-needed uh, narcissistic supplies, as, as we say, and, and I hope we can talk about that a little, because the person in these relationships is inevitably suffering from a depletion of these uh, supplies that are so crucial to our basic health and well-being. Very good. Now, now the way I read this, uh, and I think I'm understanding you, is that everybody has a little bit of narcissism. That doesn't mean that they have NPD. So let's talk about narcissistic supplies and how they contribute to a healthy self. Sure, absolutely. I'd like to back up to that first comment just to say that one of the reasons I think there is so much confusion about healthy narcissism versus unhealthy narcissism or traits versus starting to reach towards toxic narcissism and then ultimately full MPD or malignant narcissism where we have sociopathy involved as well. The whole continuum, we get confused because, uh, you know, and, and I think this helps uh, audience, lay, the layperson, un- begin to get a better handle is that healthy narcissism is simply the equivalent of healthy self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and healthy self-esteem is simply the ability to regulate our um, sense of self-worth and value and have resilience in the world. That's what healthy self-esteem is. So healthy narcissism is literally the equivalent of that. So narcissistic supplies are crucial to that reality for all of us. We need these healthy exchanges with others in our world, particularly, of course, the developing child. But we all need uh, healthy amounts of narcissistic supplies that we exchange with other loved ones or friends or valued colleagues. And so um, the narcissistic supplies are these sort of verbal and nonverbal exchanges that offer us 
a sense of our connection, our our belonging, which is twinship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's one-third of the pie. And, and my book kind of um, hopefully conveys uh, an easy-to-understand description of these these um, aspects of of uh, narcissistic supplies, which are, were originally identified, by the way, by a man named Heinz Kohut, who was a very famous psychoanalyst who developed his theories about the developing self in um, uh, the mid-20th century. And he identified these, these narcissistic supplies at first in their unhealthy versions in his analysis work. And he uh, began to really put some shape to what is so crucial to our experience of self-worth and resilience. So twinship is one of those. That's where we feel a sense of belonging when somebody else is just experiencing something similar to us, maybe not identical, but who can relate to us and say, wow, I understand what that what that feels like. Mm-hmm. You, you, you say in the book uh, that... Uh, each one of us has a vital need to know that there's a universal exper- there are universal experiences that we share with other human beings, and that's sort of at the foundation of twinship, isn't it? Thank you. Yes, indeed. That that's that's exactly, and that's why f- the word twinship. You know, as in being born as a twin, we in- inherently get to have a little being that is experiencing the world similarly to us. Uh, and having similar type feelings to similar type experiences. So it's very powerful in our sense of knowing that we're not alone, that we're connected, that we have a sense of belonging, and that there are there's a kind of universally shared um, connection that we have. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about and the, the admira- admiration, idealization, the second. Yes, Mitri. and so the, the second third of the pie is... Um, admiration idealization which now is is the exchange of of celebrating our uniqueness our individuality our one-of-a-kind um experience of self that we're like a snowflake we're literally one of a kind and when we pursue our unique um visions our ambitions our likes and we express our dislikes we are expressing our individuality and our uniqueness and uh, so if the child or the adult is in, a rela- in relationships where they're being um, affirmed, you know, is the kind of mature adult version of admiration and idealization, affirmed and respected and uh, recognized, acknowledged, appreciated, valued, these are forms of um, the admiration, idealization side of the, the um, equation. And they're very important. And um, then the last third is the mirroring, validation, and empathy, which is sort of the the communication, the communion uh, that we 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 um, employ to convey both our twinship, our differences, and navigate the journey, the big adventure, so to speak, of our um, multiplicity in the world with other people. And they're very key. To um, they're kind of like oil in the machine mm-hmm. that allows us to uh, communicate who we are and understand who others are, and convey that we respect that, that we appreciate that, that we can empathize. Now, in in both idealization and mirroring, we get a, a clue to how important our parent figures are. Um, that that idealization is to trust in those powerful people who. 
protect us when we're fragile and vulnerable when we're young. And mirroring is a common technique taught in active listening. Yes, it can be a, a very verbal um, and um, intentional uh, sort of skill of, of listening and, and sharing, but also in terms of the, the infant and the toddler, uh, much there's a lot of mirroring and, and um, exchange that goes on in a very nonverbal way that's sort of like the gleam in the parent's eye when they see the child come home from school and just, you know, uh, give them a wonderful welcome, an unconditional welcome before hopefully launching into what did you learn at school today. But, um, you know, which is sort of we need these supplies in both unconditional and conditional ways and hopefully a balance to some degree of, of that. Yeah. Now, parents have their own narcissistic wounding, but they also affect the narcissistic wounding of the child, um, uh, impeding the child's ability to internalize knowing that they're good or trustworthy or special. And that's sort of uh, where we go next in terms of the, the development of the child. Yes, and, and so the more self-aware a parent is, the more the parent is even just simply consciously trying to be a good parent, even if they're not necessarily educating themselves or you know, working on themselves, even if they're just trying to do it better than their parents did it with them, there is an inevitable progression towards better, uh, a better generation. But of course, we can enhance that trying so, so powerfully if we do um, work on self-awareness and on offloading some of our own wounding and our own defenses. We can be so much better at parenting and preventing the transmission of wounding, if you will. Um, and so, yes, the, the parents' uh, blind spots and defense structures that have uh, remained unacknowledged or unaddressed are going to be the, the form of uh, transmission of wounding, really, with the, the, the next generation, that person's child. Mm -hmm. You have a good uh, brief summary of... Uh uh, developmental psychology in here in the foundational stages of development and you cite Freud's claim show me the boy of seven and I'll show you the man uh, let's talk about those first three stages in particular the attachment stage from zero to 18 months and then the separation stage and then and then the, uh, the identity stage sure that that quote is the very famous quote from Freud um, and it really kind of is, is uh, so famous because even though it, it, it has the gender, you know, exclusion aspect to it, it's very true that the, that the foundational and critical stages of the human being's existence are those first seven years. And so much is, um, the foundation is so critical to what will allow that child to have resilience and to um, work on continued growth or, or unfortunately not. And the first three stages in particular are where the foundation of the, the core self, as they say, is being uh, laid. And uh, that is also the first stage, the first stages where the adaptations of people with personality disorders who are being maybe wounded at a very, very early age, um, not getting enough narcissistic supplies, getting too much of of uh, the wrong kind of selective narcissistic supplies alongside not enough and or just actual out-and-out wounding critical parent, a very um, 
uh, harsh parent. So any any variation on these themes are going to create a, a child that has to adapt with defense structures that unfortunately all too often become embedded in the personality of the of the child and um, and and very very honed. So that by the time a child, I'm kind of taking this a little further, if if you don't mind, into the sure. personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, reality, which is by the time the person with a, an, a narcissistic personality disorder or other personality disorders is an adult, they're so honed and developed in their defense structures or adaptations that are basically compensations for having a very fragile, insecure sense of self. And But they're so good that they tend to, to work so well that they're often lifelong and uh, there's often very little awareness that, that, that they exist and that they are actually powerfully limiting that person from being uh, healthy and fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So if we look at, at the, the wounding um, and, and what comes out of that, either the narcissistic personality disorder or the codependent neurotic issues, can you, in a, a sentence or two, talk about each of those and what, what they look like, what they appear to be? The, the sort of adult manifestation of, of the two categories. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. Um, so in um, both my books, I try to, as much as possible, simplify it. Um, and the um, with the continuum in my first book, I have kind of a continuum of, of what, what I call healthy neurotic to all character disorder or personality disorder to demonstrate that the codependent neurotic, which is my terminology for the less wounded but still has has an insecure sense of self that can powerfully um, debilitate the person uh, if they don't get help and can often attract that person towards somebody who is even uh, less well and therefore that person can ultimately kind of become less well themselves as they sort of stay in a in a uh, homeostasis of dysfunction with somebody with a personality disorder. But the character disorder, the, the personality disordered individual is, again, has very um, limited or little sense of, of true self and very little capacity to observe themselves with any independent re- ability to acknowledge, you know, and look at themselves objectively, particularly with a, a, a desire to work on the self or to acknowledge errors and, and work towards, towards, you know, progress. Uh, there's very little energy or consciousness available to the person with personality disorder to do this. So the observing self is impaired. There is, on the emotional level, very little capacity for empathy, and that includes very little capacity for genuine empathy of self. For in, Interestingly enough and ironically, the, the narcissist has very little true capacity for empathizing with themselves. They're highly sensitive and highly reactive, but very little capacity to actually maturely empathize with self, and, and conversely, very little capacity, of course, to empathize with others. So there's a severe impairment, sometimes extreme impairment, we might say, in the NPD's ability to empathize. And then um, finally, uh, there can be real impairment with self-regulation, regulation of impulses and um, behaviors, mm-hmm. and which often sort of make 
people with personality disorders quite prone to addictions and um, of all kinds. And so, uh, in fact, we might say, actually, that the narcissistic personality disorder, specifically as a personality disorder, is actually addicted to narcissistic supplies in, in such a way that they're not actually making mature use of them but they are addicted to them. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they use inauthentic ways to get to those supplies, don't they? Exactly. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes, like, for instance, a high-functioning narcissist who might be a brain surgeon or a very, very uh, talented artist um, of any kind or very accomplished, the high, high-functioning, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sometimes called structured narcissist by an expert that I quote in my book, um, they're getting their narcissistic supplies of admiration and appreciation through very real-world accomplishments. The lower-functioning narcissist is uh, often getting, inevitably getting them through, as you say, inauthentic means, more through the simple sheer force of their personality or the wily ways of their personality, maybe the, the charmer or um, Sadly, in our state of Michigan, you know, we've got the MSU scandal that is just reaching unbelievable dimensions. Uh, even yesterday, I don't know if you've heard, no. but uh, new, new, uh, terrible information coming out. But uh, you know, where a whole system gets sort of diseased, if you will, by um, narcissistic uh, individuals who have sociopathic um, dimensions and. And so very inauthentic ways of getting their narcissistic supplies met, yeah. Mm-hmm. So th- you talked about the structured and unstructured narcissist, um, but let's distinguish the overt and the covert uh, behaviors as well, please. Sure. The overt is the person who's more obvious. So therefore, in a, in a way, there's always trade-offs, um, but in a way, the overt is a little easier to spot, uh, at least now, in, as people are becoming more aware of what narcissistic disturbance actually looks like. Uh, the overt is easier to spot because they are kind of, you know, spotlight hogs, if you will, <laughs> and, um, and needing to kind of dominate the conversation, uh, the, the corporate meeting, wh- whatever. Um, and uh, so that's the more overt uh, narcissistic person, but the covert is probably a little bit more dangerous because they are very... Um, expert at feigning uh, an appearance of being interested in others, uh, the charmer, the con artist, the, um, the sociopathic, uh, we'll, we'll just stay with MSU, you know, Dr. Nasser, uh, very covert narcissist, sociopath, um, you know, appears as though they're really these good, you know, upstanding people, but um, anything but really. Mm -hmm. So uh, the covert narcissist is a bit more dangerous and has a much greater capacity to, I think, gaslight, which is to cause other people to doubt their realities and be very effective at that. So uh, when you get a high-functioning narcissist who's a covert narcissist, um, particularly high-functioning, you have a pretty scary situation. That could be a therapist, too. Mm -hmm. could be a minister. could be um, so they're, they're, the outer appearance is as if they're very other-oriented and helpful to others when actually it's simply um, 
a persona that is covering a deeper disturbance. Mm -hmm. You mentioned gaslighting, which is from the classic movie. Uh, I think it might be useful to look at the adult codependent neurotic and how they are drawn like a moth to the flame to someone with NPD. Right, right. Yes, and that's a good movie for everybody to watch, isn't it? It's just a classic. Um, But yes, I I use perhaps old-fashioned terms that are being upgraded all the time as as, uh, this... Um, these realities are becoming more in the in the common culture and awareness. But uh, neurotic is a term that is certainly indicating that intrapsychically. So co- I use the word codependent to kind of identify the outer behaviors. Codependency term coming from the um, field of addiction and the recognition that family members uh, try to become helpers to the to the person with addiction, trying to, to rescue them, trying to help them see the light and, and get away from the drug or whatever the addiction is. And so the family members or codependent, chief codependent in the, those systems becomes very much involved in the problem in an unhealthy way in, in terms of their behaviors. They begin to actually enable the the problem very unwittingly of course but nonetheless it's a, it's a common and inevitable dynamic until the person gets some outside help but the the term neurotic is is meant to identify the inner state of the person's psychology uh who are in these relationships typically i want to say also an exception to that rule is sometimes two people with personality disorders that are somewhat complementary can get together and it's so it's not always, you know, um, a personality disorder attracting a codependent, but I'd say the vast majority, mm-hmm. it, that's the case. So the codependent actually has more capacity to get well, And uh, but again, the caveat being that only if they reach outside the system and get some objective help, as you, as you mentioned earlier, with a therapist or a support group or beginning to get some education, just get outside the system to begin to get those much-needed narcissistic supplies from healthy people that will uh, begin to help the person um, have um, kind of get off the starvation edge of the cliff and begin to feel more grounded. Very good. Less crazy. Yeah. So let's talk about the four stages of recovery. They are awareness, preparation for change, empowerment, and letting go. Let's start with the awareness stage, claiming self as the center of initiative. What what needs to happen there? Right. So the the four stages are meant to indicate just roughly the the sort of progression. It's not always um, sequential, of course, and there can be a back and forth quality to the stages, but. Uh, it, of course, every every aspect of change has to start with awareness. Uh, there is not going to be change, really, uh, that sustains anyway without awareness. So um, that uh, becomes usually possible as somebody begins to open up to new information uh, and new new insight into what they've been dealing with and beginning to understand why they're always so unhappy and, in fact, why they're getting worse. So uh, gaining some awareness, like, you know, since my first book came out, it's just been incredible how much there's been an acceleration of awareness about narcissistic disturbance and its counterpart of codependency. It's just incredible. Mm -hmm. And so people can literally Google a question now and, and begin to get the term and then start to track 
uh, more information. Uh, but to begin the actual work on self, um, the thing that's so the good news about codependency and neurosis, or you know, is that there's enough awareness to for the person to actually make good use of it and to begin to recognize some of the boundary violations that are going on, to begin to see that they're kind of weak in, uh, the, the codependent is rather weak in their capacity to claim their own initiative, their own rights, and um, uh, assert that. And, uh, and so these, these three aspects of, of continuing to work with a, a greater um, development of one's observing self, uh, beginning to work with setting limits on, on boundary violations, and even learning that there are such a thing as healthy boundaries and unhealthy boundaries. That's, that's um, very much in our cultural awareness, I think, now. Yeah, and I like the self-statements there uh, in, in claiming the self. I deserve better treatment. I, I will create a better life for myself. I will not allow myself to be mistreated. I am doing something positive about my life, and I deserve help. It, the, 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 the recognition of where the boundaries are is really important in that. That's uh, um, some powerful self-statements that I probably will practice outside of this interview. I appreciate those. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Yeah, I, I, we, we, we do need to continue to work with uh, awareness of, of um, our own interactions in our lives and how they're, you know, discerning how they're going and make our choices accordingly. And with the more we are aware of, of what's in our own best interest, and that generally I encourage people because I say they often, codependents in recovery often say, oh, well, I'm being selfish. I'm afraid I'm being selfish. Well, generally, when we actually do something that is right and and good and wholesome for ourselves, it's inevitably good and right and wholesome to some degree for whoever else we're we're discerning that question about, because it's not it's not helpful or healthy to Im- enable another person's uh, uh, lack of awareness and uh, hurtful behavior. That that's not helpful. <laughs> Very good. So we have like about four minutes left, but I want to go through these stages. So in the preparation for change stage, uh, one of the most powerful tools you uh, talk about is creating assertiveness scripts. And that's so yeah. important. Um, I, I teach assertiveness in my conflict classes and oh, uh, it's based in part on a book that's 30 years old called When I Say No, I Feel Guilty, uh, but you oh, cite some yeah. other assertiveness books, too. And right, so what, right. are the, what, are the, uh, what are the ways to get assertiveness scripts into your head? Well, I, um, I can't remember. I don't have the uh, reference right in front of me, but in my book I, I cite it, um, an old, um, well, old, several decades old uh, uh, um, author that identified the DESC, D-E-S-C script, mm-hmm. Desk, that's good, sort of, yeah. um, acronym, which helps us remember that there, there is a sequence, there is kind of a, a script structure that is extremely helpful, but I also make some adaptations in my book, because I think when you're dealing with a, a strongly narcissistic person, the... Um, the average assertiveness scripts are generally are going to collapse like uh, like a paper in the wind. Mm-hmm. There has to be a much stronger uh, grounding in uh, in the scripts, and w- along with greater rehearsal. So um, and some support systems that can help 
us trouble in troubleshoot our our um enactment of them and how they went and what we would tweak and so it's an ongoing um uh work in progress i guess for especially codependents to to um develop assertiveness mm-hmm. and and the empowerment stage when you begin to set limits uh, uh actually walk away from a discussion when the npd won't uh take it in the direction you want it to go yeah that's so important that so that is the ultimate sort of use the the actual enactment the actual experiential practicing and then getting better and better at it and learning that there are always so many more possibilities than we realize because the narcissist is inevitably seeking the reactive trigger in us like a like a heat seeking missile that's what they're looking for is is to uh, create a destabilizing disorienting experience to get uh, the person sort of off balance and then start to use persuasion or intimidation to instill the doubt which codependents are have a terrible you know predisposition towards in the first place and so so it's so important to learn how to um, neutralize those dynamics. Mm-hmm. And then in the letting go section, you talk a little bit about forgiveness being more than a, than a spiritual practice. Uh, the process of, of healing involves letting go of uh, outmoded beliefs and gaining confidence in yourself. What, what would you say in one sentence about forgiveness, <laughs> which is unfair to you, but I know. <laughs> It's a process, and uh, and to to it's it's initially about letting go so one can grow. Even if it's about stepping back and creating more space, letting go of the old dynamics or beginning to step away from them and get outside help to look at the process and and change the process. Mm-hmm. There's so much more to it, of course, yes. because uh, that it's a powerful, powerful. Um, aspect of our of our lives. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been talking with Eleanor Payson. The book is Discovering the Healthy Self and Meaningful Resistance to Toxic Narcissism. I'm convinced, based upon this book and, and our conversation, that I need to go back to her first book, The Wizard of Oz and Other Classic Narcissists. Um, both books are available in print and paperback. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I remind you, if you don't catch our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can also catch us on YouTube. The YouTube channel is Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening.